0: We just read our passage this morning, and what I want you to do is, uh, I want you to imagine a bit of the background for our passage today. Imagine you are in the first century, you're a believer in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, and you're part of a church that was started by uh, the apostles, and you're following Christ. You're believing what the apostles teach. You're trying to remain faithful to the the tradition that they taught. But at some point along the line, a group of folks from your church splits off by these folks who claim to have a fuller understanding. They claim to follow Jesus. They claim to have the truth. They claim to have a superior knowledge. They say, we have a fuller knowledge, these leaders say. That what you guys have been doing, it's it's in, it's inferior. You don't have the whole picture. And so there's this other church, uh, let's call it a church plant, to use our terminology. There's a church plant across the town that it sort of claims not only that they are sort of doing the right thing, but their claims imply that you don't have the truth. You're a part of a congregation that is not actually in line with what the apostles taught. It's not in line with the true Jesus you can imagine the sort of effect that might have on you. It would maybe make you feel a bit unsettled, a bit unconfident. Am I really a part of the true, like, I believe this Jesus guy, I know he came to provide salvation, but what if the group I'm a part of, it it really isn't teaching the truth? What if it really is those, those folks over there And that's where true salvation is found, is in the message that they're teaching. But I thought that we were teaching what the apostles taught. And so this is the situation into which John writes. A situation, as you may know from chapter 2, as we read last week, there are these um, folks that John says that they went out from us, and it demonstrates that they were never actually of us. And we learn that they're teaching a different Jesus. They're actually teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And so that's the background to our letter, is that there are these false teachers. And it, it leaves them wondering, you know, are we really of the truth? And we can think of situations in our own context today that maybe are similar to this. That as we think of different um, religions out there that claim to be offshoots of Christianity, Okay, so you can think of Mormonism, or Jehovah's Witness, that would claim to be something like a branch of Christianity, or you can think of even more popularly in our context, the Roman Catholic Church, which of course claims to be a form of Christianity, but on record has a different gospel than what the Bible itself teaches. There are, even outside of the Christian religion itself, there are many truth claims out there today that would potentially cause us to question, like, do I really have the truth? Do I really believe that which provides salvation? And this is a similar situation into which, John, into which John writes, how do I actually know that what I believe is true? And as Dan said, the book gives us three tests. John will say these are the three tests of how we know what is authentic Christianity. There is a doctrinal or theological test, They actually, we actually believe that Jesus is the Christ who has come in the flesh. There's a moral test. We obey what God has commanded. And there's a relational or social test that we love others, namely our fellow believers. And so as we begin the book, in these first four verses, John, against these false teachers, wants to write Because he wants the church to know this. This is the main point of this passage. He wants the church to know this. That true fellowship with God and with his people is found in believing the gospel of the apostles. That true fellowship with God and then by extension with God's true people is found by believing the apostolic gospel. The gospel that the apostles taught. And what he wants to do in telling his congregation this is he wants them to persevere in this gospel fellowship and thereby, therein, experience true joy. And so as we read the passage, you may have noticed this is a passage that has a bit of a a wonky structure to it um, There's a lot of broken phrases and sentences And the, the main verb that we get Comes actually in verse 3 Where he says, I want to proclaim That's the main verb in our passage today Is that John is proclaiming something And what we find is in the first Roughly the first two verses We get a description of what he's proclaiming A description And then in the second two verses We get the, the purpose of that proclamation The purpose, which is fellowship and joy. And so what I want to do today is I want to have two main sections that we'll break our content up by. The first is the Jesus proclaimed and then the fellowship gained. So the first section is the Jesus proclaimed. The second section is the fellowship gained. And so let's start with the first two verses, the Jesus proclaimed. And let's read again verses 1 and 2 as well as a little bit into verse 3. And so the first thing, as we look at the Jesus proclaimed, as we look at the description of what he is going to proclaim, when he says, this is what I want to proclaim to you, I want to ask, well, first of all, what are we talking about? What is John describing here? Or we might say, who is John describing here? Because we get phrases like this. We get phrases like, I'm talking about the word of life. Or he says, I'm going to proclaim to you eternal life. Now, on the one hand, we may wonder, is he just talking about sort of the teaching of salvation or the message of salvation? He's just talking about eternal life. He's just talking about the word, the message about eternal life. Is he just talking about, like, I want to proclaim to you a doctrine of salvation? Is that all he's saying? But one of the difficulties with that is there's actually phrases in this passage that would indicate he's actually talking about something more. You'll notice, he says that this eternal life was something that was manifested. It showed up. It was something that, uh, he, he or we, he says literally, we heard, we touched, we saw. He says that this eternal life was with the Father. And, and a lot of this language is very reminiscent of John chapter 1 in his gospel, is it not? If you're familiar with the gospel of John, John says things like, in the beginning, just like here he talks about that which was from the beginning. He uses metaphors like life and light, like he does here. Light shows up in verse 5, but it's pretty close to our context today. The language of manifest sounds very similar to how in John 1 he says that the word dwelt among us. Even the word word. The word. The word was with God. And so we get a lot of this language Being with the Father, the Word was with God, the Word was God. That sounds really similar to John chapter 1, where it's quite obvious he's referring to Jesus. And it seems to me that that's, that's what he's talking about here. He's not just talking about salvation in the abstract, or salvation as something we receive, but he's talking about salvation, eternal life, as a very person. He's proclaiming, in other words, the very person of Jesus Christ. That which was from the beginning, who existed in eternity past with the Father, has been manifest, the Incarnation has become a human being, and was actually something that John and others, his fellow apostles, and other believers, saw, heard, and touched. They literally experienced him. And so, one of the things he says is, I want to look at that phrase where he talks about, he says that we heard we saw, we touched, things like that, is, first of all, why does he say that? Why does he go out of his way to talk about seeing, touching, and hearing? And on the one hand, we might say that knowing what we know about the false teachers, the false teachers were people who denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. And so think about that. By saying, I saw him, I heard him, I even touched him, It's an implicit denial of that false teaching. No, he really did come into the flesh, and that's vitally important for a doctrine of salvation. How can someone who is not truly human die in the place of humans? Jesus needed to be human. But furthermore, the other reason I think he says this is that he's establishing his credibility as an eyewitness. He's saying, I was there. Like, you got these people over here. Though that church plant across town, they're saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Are you kidding me? I saw it. I was there. I heard him. I touched him. How can you be denying this? He's establishing his credibility. In other words, like, when we say that we believe in the historical God man Jesus Christ, what we are doing even today is these are not just some abstract notions that some random person wrote in a book that we believe that we are believing the very message that the apostles saw, the very person that the apostles proclaimed, that they were with him. We are believing eyewitness testimony from the very from the very people that Jesus himself appointed, the Jesus that we trust, the Jesus that we love and believe in. These are the folks that saw him. These are the folks that he himself appointed and gave authority to proclaim him. It's like if you were in a court. You wouldn't, if you were a lawyer, you wouldn't bring forward a witness who's just like some random dude on the street who has, who maybe like heard a rumor about the case. We'd be like, okay, we're gonna bring forth Joe Smo, and you're like, well, who cares what he has to say? What do you do? You bring forth a person who is an eyewitness to the evidence that they're testifying to, and so you're like, that's that's legit. They saw it. They heard it. And that's what the apostles are. They they are eyewitnesses to these things, which of course bolsters our confidence, John has the ability to actually talk to these things. Those false teachers don't. But then when we, when we look at what exactly John, how John describes this Jesus, you'll notice he describes him as the eternal life. Okay, he uses that phrase eternal life. He says, what, it, what was it exactly that he heard and he saw and he touched? What was it that was with the Father and then was manifest and he now proclaims? It's this, that Jesus is the eternal life. And I want to ask that question. My finger is getting really sore holding this. I'm going to switch it up. And my iPad keeps, like, being all funky at me, so bear with me. But what does he mean exactly when he describes Jesus as the eternal life? Like, what, is that, what does that mean to describe Jesus as eternal life? We might expect him to say, Jesus gives us eternal life. Or Jesus accomplished it. But what does it mean to say Jesus is the eternal life? And I think what he means is this. Jesus embodies the hope of eternal life. He rose from the dead. He himself rose from the dead. He himself achieved that life. Of course, all this presumes that we were dead in our sins, right? That we're in need of life. We're in need of God to give us life. And Jesus embodies that hope. He rose from the dead. He accomplished our eternal life. Life, then, is found in him and nowhere else. He is the life giver. So much so, eternal life is so closely tied to Jesus, so much so that it can be said that he is that eternal life. And what do we get in the Gospel of John, right? In the Gospel of John, in in John, written by the same author, right? John 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he talks to Martha and Mary, and he says, I am the resurrection, and the life. I am. Why, what does he mean by that? He raises Lazarus from the dead as a sign. Remember the signs in John? There's all these symbols that show things about Jesus. I, this is a sign. My raising Lazarus from the dead is a sign that I have authority over life and death. That life and death, that life, eternal life, is actually found in me. And so he can say in, in John 5, John can, Jesus can say that the Father has given the Son authority to raise people from the dead and give life to whomever he wills. And so he says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the life. Life is found in me. And so what does John say in the the epistle of 1 John then? In chapter 5, if you want to look at it, chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, or you can just listen, John says this. He says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. They're so closely identified that if you have the Son, you have life. If you have life, you must have the Son. Whoever does not have the Son, therefore, does not have life. Or in 1 John 5.20, he says that he, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. That Jesus is eternal life. And this is the Jesus that he says he proclaims. It's this Jesus. It's this eternal life that John says he proclaims in this book. Now, here's the interesting thing, though, is when John writes the rest of the book, Okay, he's saying, I'm going to proclaim... What I'm doing here as I introduce the book is I'm telling you, I'm proclaiming you eternal life. I'm proclaiming to you Jesus. But then when you actually look at the rest of the book, what does John do? We might expect him... Then to go on describing Jesus in great detail, we might expect him to go on uh, writing about what we would call the gospel, right? But as you look at the book, there is actually very there's there is not a whole lot of attention given to describing things like Jesus' death and resurrection. Most of the book, as we said, is describing the characteristic of the Christian life, describing what it looks like to follow Jesus. Well, what's the implication of this? Is John really proclaiming Jesus then? You see, because in our mind, we often divorce those two. If I'm proclaiming Jesus, then I'm not then talking about what it looks like to live the Christian life. But in John's mind, those two cannot be divorced. Okay, so on the one hand, this goes against the idea that to proclaim Jesus is sort of separate from, than these other things in the Christian life that we care about, these sort of implications of the Christian life, what it looks like to follow Him. Okay, sometimes, even in right now, there's a lot of discussion happening right now about sort of, well, on the one hand, we want to preach the gospel, and then sometimes people view like talking about social concerns or different things that we as Christians might be engaged in, like that's something different, and that's a distraction. And John... Weds the two. He, He sees proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming Jesus, and proclaiming what it looks like to follow Jesus, proclaiming eternal life, and proclaiming what it looks like to possess that eternal life. Those are interconnected. Now, yes, we want to distinguish sort of the hub of the gospel, the very center of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ, what God has done. We want to make sure we don't mix that up with what we do. Those are two different things. But my point is, John sees those as naturally connected. So that when he says this book is about proclaiming Jesus, he can naturally segue into what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. When he says this book is about proclaiming eternal life, he can naturally segue into proclaiming what it looks like for those who actually abide in Jesus and possess eternal life. The other implication that this means, though, is that when we talk about those things like what it looks like to love one another and follow God's commandments, all these instructions about the Christian life, we can't, we we go wrong if we talk about those things and we think about those things disconnected from the gospel. If they're just commands, if it's just a list of things to do. But in John's theology, implied here, is that all of those things have to be rooted first and foremost in what God has done for us. Those are all outflows of eternal life. Those are not just mere commands we do, but they're outflows of the gospel. And so he wants to in this book, he wants to unpack what it looks like to possess possess eternal life. And again, he gives us those three tests the doctrinal, the social, and the moral. And now we want to look at the fellowship gained. So we've looked at what exactly is he proclaiming this Jesus the eternal life. Now let's look at the fellowship gained in proclaiming this. In John, let's look at verses 3 and 4. So partway through verse 3, he says, We proclaim this also to you. Why? So that. Here's the purpose. First, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that. Again, here's the purpose. So that our joy may be complete.
1: And so, the first
0: purpose I want us to realize is, is this. Why does John proclaim the eternal life? Is so that we can have fellowship. His goal is that we would have fellowship. Now, first of all, what do we mean by fellowship? What do we mean by that word? Fellowship is a word that means commonality, that we have something in common, that we have something shared. Sometimes it can be that we have a shared partnership, but more likely here, the idea would be that we have a shared salvation that we have a salvation in common with one another. We participate in a common grace of God. And you'll notice, he talks then about, I want to proclaim these things to you so that you can have fellowship with God. The assumption here is, is that he's talking about salvation, right? When he uses this language of fellowship with God, he's talking about having a restored relationship with God. The assumption as we know is that that we have a we in our sin, we are born as sinners and we are born with a broken relationship with God. We as Paul says that we are dead in our sin and the wrath of God remains on us. And what does John say in John chapter 2? In John chapter 1 John, sorry, chapter 2 verses 1 through 2, he talks about Jesus as the advocate, the righteous one who is what? The propitiation for our sins. There's an assumption here that our sins need to be propitiated. That's a a fancy word that means have the wrath satisfied. That God in His holiness is wrathful towards our sin. In His goodness and in His righteousness, he, He hates evil just as we all should. But the problem is we are evil. We have sinned. We have gone astray. And so we righteously deserve His wrath. And yet, as the loving Father is, as John chapter 3 says, God so loved the world that He sent His Son. Jesus became that propitiation so that all who believe in Him receive Jesus as their advocate. They receive Jesus as their wrath-satisfying sacrifice. And so that's what he's talking about here. When he says, I want to proclaim to you eternal life, I want to proclaim to you Jesus, it's so that you can have that fellowship, that restored relationship with God. The the gospel he's proclaiming here, in other words, is a a fellowship-accomplishing, life-giving gospel. It's one that takes us from death to life, puts us back into relationship with God. And so he says, I want to proclaim this to you so that you can have fellowship. This is similar to what he says at the end of the book. I want to proclaim this to you so that you can have salvation. At the end of the book in verse 13, chapter 5, he says, I write these things so that, here's the purpose, you who believe in the name of the Son of God, you may know that you have eternal life. And so his purpose statement at the beginning, I want to proclaim to you eternal life so that you can have fellowship. And his purpose statement at the end, I want you to know that you have eternal life. They all have to do with wanting to assure us of our salvation. And the assumption here, of course, is this. How do people come into that position of having fellowship with God? How do people come into the state of having eternal life? It's through the proclamation of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, it becomes the vehicle it becomes the means, the tool that God uses to give people eternal life. And we say this in a, in a context where maybe preaching is not entirely popular, always. It kind of, especially when you're using a megaphone, it kind of looks like you're condemning people and you're judging them, right? But what does the Bible say? John is assuming here, I'm proclaiming to you eternal life. This is actually how people gain eternal life, is by actually us telling them the gospel. And so there is something important, there is something non-negotiable in the Christian faith about preaching, about proclaiming, something that we can all do. It's a privilege then that we have in evangelism as we go out to share the gospel with others. Think about what John is saying here. He says, when we share the gospel with someone we share Jesus with them, that's actually a way where God is able to impart eternal life to them. You get to be an agent in a miracle, when you share the gospel with someone, God is God is taking people who are dead in sin and he's resurrecting them. And that's something that we get to be a part of. That as 2 Corinthians 5 says that we are agents of God's reconciliation, that God makes his appeal of resurrection or reconciliation through us. That we get to be the agents of God accomplishing reconciliation in this world. And you'll also notice that he says, I I want to preach these things to you so that your fellowship is with us and our fellowship is with the Father. He has this assumption that the horizontal fellowship we have with each other is connected to the vertical fellowship we have with God. He says, I want you to have fellowship with me and with the apostles. Why? Because it's we the apostles, It's, it's, it's our community, it's in our gospel that you're going to find fellowship with God. And the assumption here is, of course, this. It's that if you truly claim to have fellowship with God, it necessarily implies that you're going to have fellowship with God's people. You can't have one, the vertical, without the other, the horizontal. If you are going to claim to be a Christian, to claim to be someone who's saved, you can't not also then necessarily have fellowship with those other folks who are saved as a part of the church. But the other thing is this as well, our fellowship that we have with one another is not rooted based on our common melatonin levels, it's not based on our common political ideas, it's not based on our common interests or our common age or our common whatever. The fellowship that we have with each other is a fellowship, as we said, of sharing in the same salvation. And we have something that transcends all the things that are currently dividing the world today is that God has brought a people together who are natural enemies, and he's made us friends. But the, the primary reason that John wants to emphasize this fellowship is this. He says, I want, I want to proclaim this to you so that you can have fellowship with us, the apostles, and our fellowship is with the Father. Now, now don't forget, who's in the background right now? The false teachers. So you can hear what John is saying in, in some ways is an argument here. He's not just saying, I want you to have fellowship. But what he's saying is you can imagine the false teachers being like, that, that, that church plan across town being like, you want to know where the true fellowship with God is? It's right here in what we're teaching. We're the people who have true fellowship with God. We know what real knowledge is. And John's saying, no, 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 no. I want you to have fellowship with us. Why? Because... It's in line with what we, the apostles, teach. That's where you have fellowship with God. Where you can actually have salvation is by believing the message that the apostles teach. It's by believing the Jesus that the apostles know. And we think of what Paul says in Galatians 1, that there is no other gospel. If anyone comes and proclaims to you another gospel, even if an angel comes and proclaims to you another gospel, don't believe it. There is only one gospel, and that is the gospel that Jesus accomplished and gave his apostles to spread. And so as we come to our our close, again, the point of this passage is this. True fellowship with God is found in believing and persevering in the apostles' gospel. True fellowship, true salvation is found in believing and persevering in the Apostles' Gospel. And so I have three takeaways that I think that I'll, I'll give us today as we think about this. Is The first is this. The, the, in answering that sense, any sense of being unsettled or uncertain, do we really believe what's true? Do we really have the truth? In light of a world that's bombarding us with a whole bunch of other competing truth claims or even other groups, as we said, of, of quote-unquote Christians that would teach different things about who Jesus is or the gospel itself. John wants us to have confidence. John wants us to have assurance. He wants to say, listen, as an apostle, as someone authorized and appointed by Jesus, as someone who saw Jesus, as someone who is there, believe what we teach. Don't go after those other things and thereby have confidence that you really do believe the very true message about Jesus Christ. You want to follow Jesus? You want to believe Jesus? Believe what we, the apostles, say about him. And so we can have the same sort of confidence today, the same similar situation that those original readers faced. We can believe Jesus based on the eyewitness, authorized, authoritative testimony of the apostles. True fellowship with God is found in their gospel. But the other thing, too, is as John then gets ready, he wants to confirm us in that gospel. He wants to confirm us as people who abide in Jesus and confirm us in that fellowship. We should also take heed of, then, what the rest of the book says. The rest of the book then outlines three tests of what it actually looks like to be a part of that fellowship. It's people who truly believe what is, what is the apostolic gospel. It's people who have their doctrine right on these fundamental truths. Namely, in this book, at least, that Jesus came in the flesh. But we might add other things that we know are fundamental, justification by faith alone. It's people who believe, who who meet the moral test, that we actually obey what God commands. How can you claim to be in, in the fellowship with God if you don't walk in the light as God is in the light? And finally, it's people who meet the social test or the relational test. How can you claim to love God but not love your fellow brother? And so as John wants to confirm us in the gospel, and then confirm us in this true fellowship, I don't think he merely wants to give us assurance, but I think he also wants to challenge us. This book is an implicit challenge. It's an implicit warning, because what do we see? We see in the book, there is is a real thing as a fake believer. A real fake believer. There is a real thing as a superficial believer, right? Because in chapter 2, he talks about people who leave, and he says they were never of us. And we shouldn't be so naive to think that there may be people even in our own congregation, God forbid it, but there may be people with, even within our own midst who eventually at some point demonstrate that they never were a believer. And a book like 1 John is meant to be a means of God's grace to warn us. To say, "If I want you to truly be in fellowship with the apostles and fellowship with God, but, but what does that look like? It looks like this. And so we should read the book as a warning as a good warning, a gracious warning, a way of God keeping us on track. But then finally, you may have noticed that the second purpose that John gives, he, wants to, he says, I want to proclaim this so that you can have fellowship, but the second purpose is so that our joy may be complete. Now, our joy could be referring specifically just to John and maybe the people who are writing with him. Like, he wants to have joy in seeing the church respond properly. And so in 2nd and 3rd John, he says things that are similar. He says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children, my spiritual children, are walking in the truth. And yet there's also good reason to think that he may also be talking about not just his own joy, but the joy of the people he's writing to. That the ultimate reason that he wants the folks to be confirmed in this fellowship is so that they would have joy. Why? Because true joy is ultimately found in fellowship with God and in fellowship with his people. Not, not uh, rattled by, or shaken by the comp- competing claims that are out there, but settled in the truth and experiencing salvation. That's where true joy is found. And, and it's important to remember this as we begin the book, because 1 John can be one of those books that people sort of have an impression of, that it's just cranky old John, writing these really hard truths that it's kind of a drudgery, it feels condemning, like, oh no, I'm not saved, because he has all these really hard things to say. And it's important to remember that his ultimate aim here is joy. He wants us to experience joy. Joy is found by having a a settled, confident, assurance faith in receiving salvation that is in Christ. And so as we come now to the end of our sermon today and as you if you have your Lord's Supper elements or if you need to grab some over there we're reminded that one the ultimate goal of this passage is that he wants us to take in view the fellowship that we have with God as believers. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper being a pictured promise, it's symbolic but it's Its symbolism symbolizes the promises that we have in the gospel of Jesus' blood and his body given for us in his death. It's a pictured promise. It's it's an emblem of the gospel. It's the gospel made visible and tangible. We're reminded of the fellowship that this passage talks about, right? That, That our fellowship with God has been achieved in the death of Christ. This is what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the eternal life and the fellowship that John has just talked about. As, as chapter 2, verses 1-2 through two says, that Jesus is the righteous advocate who propitiates for our sins. And this is exactly what we celebrate. We celebrate that, that although we stood in God's wrath, although we deserved God's wrath, God has sent Jesus Christ to take that wrath us, so that now we actually have fellowship with God. And a table of fellowship in the ancient world, to actually come to a table and eat with someone, Even as sometimes in some way it means this today, but especially in the ancient world, to eat with someone was very meaningful in that it meant that we're friends. It was something that you would do to demonstrate you have peace with another person. And so in the Lord's Supper, it's called the Lord's Supper. It's called Jesus' Supper. He's the host. You don't come to the Lord's table on your own initiative. It's not your supper. It's not my supper. It's not Dan's supper. It's Jesus' Supper. He's the host and he has extended the invitation to you. And the invita- the invitation, the fact that you are sharing a meal participation as Paul calls it fellowship, literally fellowship with Jesus, 1 Corinthians 10 implies that you have peace with God. You are sharing a meal. You have this is a symbolism of the table is a symbolism of friendship and peace with God himself. And all of that is because Jesus has won that peace for us in the cross and so again we celebrate this as a pictured promise as paul says we want to take the lord's supper with seriousness with joy but with seriousness he says things like we want to make sure we're discerning the body we want to make sure we're taking it in a worthy way and so we believe that the lord's supper is specifically for believers it's symbolism picture salvation and so if you are someone here today who has not yet placed your faith in christ who would ask for you to refrain but if you are a believer we would invite you, obviously, to participate with us. If you're someone who is who is able to take the Lord's Supper in a way that matches the meaning of the Supper, not that you're perfect. The Lord's Supper itself already declares you're not perfect. That's the point. But as someone who is repentant and striving to follow Jesus, we take the Lord's Supper as a means of assurance, as a means of receiving the very promise of God that Christ himself saves us,